Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to get really, really Christmassy this morning and talk about judgment. Uh, I got a laugh at 8.30, I hope you know. And you guys are supposed to be the easier crowd. Um, it is, you know, it, it seems out of context, but I mean, if you think about it, if Santa Claus knows if you're naughty or nice, Jesus probably does too. So um, there we go. That one landed. Good job. We don't like to talk about judgment at all, really. We, 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 don't, we want to ignore it. It sounds too Baptist when we do, right? That's what they talk about down the road. But an apocalypse, as, as a genre of literature, as, as, as a prophecy, it only makes sense in the context of a coming judgment. And, and when you get right down to it and you really understand what it's all about, there is a part of us that should want that judgment to come. You can't escape this message. It's woven into the Bible right from the very beginning all the way through to the end. God will one day judge the world. It's all in the gospel. Jesus is insistent that a judgment is coming. And, and all too often we leave that bit out. We want to embrace all the other parts of the gospel except the judgment and the problem is that Jesus is pretty clear that it's coming and it's inescapable. And our problem really is that we struggle to reconcile the idea of God, the righteous judge, with God, the loving Savior. And Revelation gives us, actually, the framework to take those two ideas which seem like they shouldn't work together and combine them into one. There are two visions in particular that John has of the risen Lord that help us kind of put these ideas together. So the first is in Revelation chapter 1, 10 through 20. <clears throat> On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash round his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters." In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades." Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. 
See, it's only when we begin to see Christ as he truly is that we start to see anything else as it truly is. So if the seven lampstands are the seven churches, then Christ is in the middle of his people, not some far-off, distant place. He's not a detached, uncaring God. He is present in the midst of his people, actively working among them. The white hair indicates age and wisdom, and the long robes signify a person of great importance. And then he's got this blazing fire in his eyes, right? So even though he's aged and wise, he still has passion and energy and vitality. And altogether, this description of Jesus is one that's it's, at once it's dazzling and it's glorious. And to those who would be his enemies, it's utterly terrifying. It's a reminder that the Jesus we love is not to be trifled with. We should be in awe of him. I think sometimes we, we are so familiar with Jesus that we don't see the whole picture of who he is. When we know someone and love them, we get a very different picture of them than other people do. And we don't actually always see the entire picture, right? My wife does not see me the same way that you all see me. That may be a bad thing for us, but, right? She has a much deeper, more intimate relationship with me. She knew me before I was a pastor. In fact, I have a lot of close friends still who knew me long before I went into ministry, and a lot of them are shocked that I became a pastor, and um, that's why I don't let them come to church. <laughs> Y'all don't need to hear those stories. Um, my dad, though, is another example. My dad is, has been a pastor for over 40 years, and virtually every Methodist pastor in South and Central Texas knows him and has known him for a long, long time. Uh, the, most of the lay leaders in the churches know him. People who have been involved in leadership at the conference level know him. Several people in this church have known him for a really, really long time. And they don't see him like I do. <laughs> he's, he's widely respected, and, and people tell me all the time what a, what a great leader he is and they, what a great teacher he is and how much they appreciate his wisdom and his leadership. Uh, but they don't know that 90% of what comes out of his mouth is fart jokes. I'm not even sure if I can say that word in church yet, but but the truth is, now that I, I am among those people and, and I actually have a chance on occasion to interact with my dad as he goes about doing his actual work, um, I, I have more respect for him now than I used to because I have a fuller picture of who he is. I would hope that, that when my wife sees me preach on Sunday mornings and, and sees me do things around the church, that she too has a bit more respect for me than otherwise because she gets a fuller picture of who I am. Just like when I see her in her element at work and doing the things that she's passionate about, I get a fuller picture of her than I usually do and I have more respect for who she is. To fully appreciate Jesus and who he is, we have to begin to see him from all angles. We get used to intimacy with Jesus. We see him as loving and kind and friendly, and that's a good thing because those are absolutely true statements about Jesus. There's no question that he is loving and kind and friendly and merciful, but it is helpful from time to time to take a step back and look at him with a different perspective, to see him as the messianic ruler, the, the conquering king, and the one who will bring final judgment. And to that end, we'll go to the second vision that John has here in Revelation chapter 5, verses 5 through 14. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. 
Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. From the description that we get in that first chapter of Revelation, you shouldn't be all that surprised to hear Jesus described or called the, the Lion of Judah. He's kind of fearsome and powerful and strong. What is surprising is that as John is looking for the lion, what he sees is a lamb that's been killed. And and this is truly a a heavenly vision. This is a symbol chosen by God. When, When people choose an animal as a symbol, we choose things that are powerful, predators, right, right? Uh, Russia chose the bear, Britain chose the lion, we chose the eagle, people in Oregon for some reason chose a beaver, but who knows what's up with them. (laughs) We choose powerful, fearsome animals, right? Things that embody strength. Only the kingdom of heaven would choose as its symbol, not the lion that John was looking for, but a lamb that has already been killed. If an apocalypse is meant to strip away all our filters and reveal the way that things truly are, these visions are describing Jesus as he truly is without any of the filters that we might wish to impose on him. So set aside for a moment all the things that you think about Jesus. Set aside the man in shepherd's robe. Set aside uh, the guy with blonde hair and blue eyes and the paintings in the church walls that has other problems. Set aside the man on a cross for a minute. Set aside the friend and the healer, the man who shows love and mercy to the lowly. Set aside the infant king. Those are all accurate images of who he is, but set them aside for just a minute and focus instead on the man dressed in white and gold with blazing eyes and a deadly sword. Wise, mature, fearsome. The Lion of Judah. And focus on the lamb who was slain. Humble, broken, and murdered. This is Jesus. He's the Lion of Judah, the fulfillment of all the promises that God made to Israel. Dating all the way back into Genesis. He's the King of all creation. He's the the 
fearsome destroyer of evil and death. He's the defender of the faithful, the one who will avenge the martyrs, the protector of his followers, and a terror to any who would oppose him. He's the king and he's the righteous judge who will one day bring all evil to justice. Including, by the way, our own. There is a phrase that's woven throughout the Bible. People refer to the fear of the Lord. And it's not fear like we would experience towards a you know, villain or, or toward people we might think of our enemies. It's, it's the sort of healthy respect that you give to something or someone who is dangerous but not a threat. And here's what I mean. Not everything that is dangerous is a threat, right? It, it, my late grandfather taught me how to shoot. He was a Marine. He served in Korea. So he knew what he was doing, even if you might want to question the wisdom of handing a full M1 rifle to an 8-year-old. Um, and like a lot of grandfathers teaching their grandsons how to shoot, the very first thing he taught me was, was not how to load the weapon, how to aim it. It was respect for the thing I was holding. Because the rifle in my hands was dangerous and it was powerful. It's not a toy. It demanded to be treated and used with the utmost respect and caution. And those of you who've been uh, taught to shoot, especially at a, at a gun range, you all know the rule, right? You never, under any circumstances, point that weapon towards another person unless you are meaning to shoot them. Even if the safety's on, even if it is not loaded, you point it straight up or you point it away from people. If you're at a firing range, you keep it pointed downrange at all times, even if there's no one else there with you. Because you're cultivating a habit of intense respect for the weapon in your hands. If you are always consciously aiming it away from people when it's not even loaded, you don't risk accidentally hurting someone when it is. It is cultivating a deep sense of respect for the, the power and the danger of the thing you're holding. In, uh, in 2010, I, went, I was in Australia, I went to the Australia Zoo, which is Steve Irwin's zoo, and I grew up watching the crocodile hunter on TV, so I went straight to the crocodile area, right? Because you saw those crocodiles on TV too, so it's kind of like they're your you know, surrogate pet. <laughs> I will never forget walking up to one of the enclosures, and right there, this 20-foot-long crocodile is stretched in a straight line right up against the fence. I mean, just a perfect spot to go up and, and look at this thing. And I will never forget the sense of, of deep awe you feel for this enormous, powerful creature. This thing that could swallow you whole if it wanted to, and it would if given the chance. Standing just maybe four feet away from it. And even though you know that you are perfectly safe, you're in no danger, there's no way it can get to you you still feel that sense of unease being in the presence of something so incredibly powerful, so much stronger and faster than you. And it doesn't matter if you know logically that you're perfectly safe. You still feel like you want to take a few steps back. A lot of the times when people will try and explain what the Bible means when it refers to the fear of the Lord, they, they compare it to 
maybe the way we feel about our parents, right? We love them, we respect their authority over us, uh, and, and that's maybe part of it, but I don't think that quite captures everything that the, that the phrase fear of the Lord is trying to communicate. I think these things I've just described kind of fill out the picture a bit more. In the Old Testament, it is abundantly clear to the people of Israel that the tabernacle and later the temple, the places where God's presence was, those were the danger zones. You didn't walk into them if you didn't prepare yourself first. You went through all the rituals to purify yourself and cleanse yourself to make sure that it was safe for you to enter into the presence of a holy God. There was a deep, deep deep-seated respect for the danger of walking into God's presence. It's not being afraid of God. It's not living in fear of an angry God who wants to smite you. It is an awareness at a deep level of the gap between God and humanity and a respect for the power and the majesty of God. Entering into God's holy presence was risky, not because God was angry and wanted to smite you, but just because God is God and we are not. And that's what it's referring to, that awareness of of the vastness of God, the power and the majesty and the glory of God and the goodness and the holiness of God. And then seeing yourself in light of all that. Jesus is the Lion of Judah. And he's also the Lamb who was slain. And if anything, it's that image of him that's more important. It appears far more often in Revelation. And it is precisely because he is the Lamb who was slain that he is worthy to open the scroll and he's worthy to sit on the throne. Michael Mansour was a Navy SEAL who deployed to Iraq and and fought in the Battle of Ramadi. And on September 29, 2006, he and several other SEALs, along with a group of Iraqi soldiers were trapped on a rooftop surrounded by insurgents. When a grenade landed on the roof right in front of him, he had a choice. There was exactly one exit from that rooftop, and he was right next to it. Of all the people up there, he was the only one who would be able to escape before the grenade went off. Instead, he dove on top of it. He smothered the grenade with his body and saved the lives of everyone else on the roof with him. He wasn't even supposed to be there that day. He had been scheduled to return home the week before and had sent one of his comrades home in his place because that man had a wife and kids and he didn't. His every action leading up to that moment was one of selfless love and sacrifice. And so he was awarded the Medal of Honor posthumously. Now we still recognize at a deep, deep level That sacrificial love like that deserves the highest possible honors we can give. We will always celebrate men who give their lives more than we will celebrate men who take lives, even in the context of a war. We recognize that it's that level of sacrifice that is the deepest love a man can show. That men who lay down their lives to save others are more deserving of honor and glory than anybody else. We still struggle, though, to make the connection between that kind of sacrifice and true victory. To make the connection that 
that it is precisely the willingness of people to lay down their lives for those they love that leads to ultimate victory. It is because Jesus sacrificed himself for the sake of humanity that his love was so deep that he willingly gave himself up that he is worthy of all honor and glory and power. He can be the Lion of Judah only because he is the Lamb who was slain. This is the the bizarre economy of heaven. Power comes through weakness. Victory comes through defeat. Gain comes through sacrifice. The first Christians who heard this message lived dangerous lives. They faced terrible persecution. They proclaimed Jesus as Lord and refused to acknowledge that Caesar was a god. And because of that, they were seen not just as, as religious nut jobs out on the fringes of society, but as an actual threat to the Roman Empire. The emperors Domitian and Nero, in particular, committed horrifying atrocities in their persecution of Christians. And even when the Roman government wasn't actively persecuting them, they were still social outcasts who faced constant difficulty in life because of their faith. John's readers, the first ones who received this letter from him, were under threat. Evil in their world seemed triumphant. Rome was all-powerful, but Rome's power is not God's power. Rome's power is false. It's temporary at best. God's power is not only eternal and unchanging, but God's power works in unexpected ways which subvert human ideas of power and glory. What John is showing his readers is that power, honor, and glory, these things come through sacrifice and only through sacrifice. Selflessness is the highest good. Conquest comes through letting go. Jesus has already triumphed over the forces of evil, and he did it on the cross, not on the battlefield. And it's because he did it on the cross that he now sits on the throne to judge the world. Jesus is not who we expect him to be. When we're looking for the lion, we find the lamb. When we're looking for a friend, we find a judge, and and we want to reject those parts of him. We want to reject the part that tells us that sacrifice is the way forward. We reject his role and his authority as a judge, and in fact, we refuse to even connect that with his sacrifice. We want to embrace the sacrifice and celebrate it, but we're unwilling to even consider his role as the judge. But there's no escaping it. Jesus is the righteous judge, but he didn't earn the right to be that judge through violence or wrath. He earned it because he loves us so deeply and so selflessly that he died for us. And it's that which makes him worthy to be king and to be judge. And when you think about it, isn't that exactly who you want to be judging your life? Don't you want a judge who loves you more than life itself? Don't you want a judge who will do and has done literally anything to redeem you? What could you have to fear from that judge? The office demands respect, but we don't need to be afraid. In the end, Jesus will judge us along with everyone else, but but thank God he will. 
because there is no one better. We need a judge. The world needs a judge. Evil has to be dealt with. And Jesus is the one who's going to do it. This is the great message of hope that John is giving to all these persecuted Christians living in his day and age, as well as to all Christians who will follow, that, that Jesus is going to deal with evil once and for all. Jesus will make all things right. And there is a sense in which those who would stand against him as he does so should be afraid. But those who will follow him, who will rejoice in his wisdom and in his goodness, have nothing to fear. We should be happy and joyful. We should be hopeful. Because we know that the one who sits on the throne, the one who will one day judge all of humanity, is not an angry, wrathful God, but the one who humbled himself to become one of us, who lived as one of us, who understands what it is like to be human and to face temptation and struggle and suffering, and who laid down his life for us. He is the lion because he's the lamb. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.